chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. And it's on the screen behind us. What I want to do is concentrate on Paul's doxology, uh, which we'll come to understand in just a moment. Um, Romans 11, verse 33 until the end in verse 36. Let me just pray one more time before we read God's word. Father in heaven, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your word and finally through your son Jesus. And we do pray now, Father, as we read and together we ask that your spirit will come amongst us to give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Romans are written by the Apostle Paul, and Paul writes in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and a wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please keep God's word open. If you have pen and paper, uh, do like to jot some notes down. It just helps us to work through this passage. Just want to work uh, through this word by word and then finish in about 30 minutes or so um, with some points of application. Let me start by asking you if you've heard of some of these names. Johann Sebastian Bach. I think he's German, isn't he? Yeah, yeah there you go. Good German musician. Gustav Holtz. Yeah, some people have maybe heard him, musician again, Wolfgang Mozart, and Ludwig van Beethoven. I wonder if anyone, when I said those four names, could tell me what all these individuals have in common. Yeah, they're all musicians. They have all composed some of the greatest pieces of musical composition ever known uh, to us. Whether musical or not, we can all appreciate uh, classical music. Now, you'll soon learn that I can't sing. I can't play anything. I've tried, and it is dreadful. So my, my musical understanding isn't quite there. But I do like to follow along classical music, and I think all of us uh, can share this joy that when we're listening to classical music, we are automatically um, absorbed into the drama and swept along with the ensuing composition. As the tempo is lowered and the pitch decreases, we imagine a sad and a dark, potentially a depressive moment. But when the tempo quickens and, and the pitch increases, we start to, to, we start to imagine the sun coming through, uh, coming through the walls and we start to imagine this bright and this marvelous picture. And then comes at the top of the, at the, top of the composition, the crescendo, the high point of that musical composition. And like the works of these great men, we could describe Paul's letter to the Romans as an extraordinary musical composition. You see, Paul begins in Romans 1 uh, to chapter 3 with a slower tempo. He highlights a universal problem of sin, a problem that means that all of humanity is under God's righteous wrath. That includes you, and it includes me. 
We're all born with a sinful nature. We all uh, commit sin with anything that we say, anything that we think, anything that we do that breaks God's commands and displeases our Creator. So it's, it's a slow tempo. The mood's dark. It's depressive, this universal problem of sin. But right in the middle of chapter 3 of Romans, the tempo begins to increase. The pitch begins to get higher. Why? Because this universal problem of sin is solved by a universal provision of grace. The mood becomes um, cheerful and hopeful as Paul, the composer, notes how Christians, by their faith in Jesus Christ, are more than conquerors and will be saved. And that carries on from the middle of chapter 3 of Romans the whole way through to the start of chapter 9. And then suddenly, at the beginning of chapter 9, 9 verse 2, an unexpected change occurs as the tempo yet again drops. The music gets louder and louder and louder. Paul is distressed and he's sorrowful at the beginning of chapter 9 as his fellow Israelites are separated from God. But the mood changes again as Paul traces God's sovereign plan of salvation. Jewish rejection, Gentile acceptance, and a future restoration envisioned for the people of Israel. And that's all highlighted, if you know Romans, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Answers are given to some questions, and some questions are left unanswered. The mood is lighter, the tempo is faster, the pitch is higher, and then Paul reaches a crescendo of his musical composition in our passage this morning. Chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, is the peak, the high point, the mountaintop of the Romans. How do we know this? Because it's a doxology. What's a doxology? Well, it comes uh, from two Greek words, doxa, meaning glory, and logos, meaning word, Combine that together, you have a word about glory, a song of glory. A doxology, then, is a hymn of praise. Do you see what's happening here? With that quick background, all, all the theology that, that the Apostle Paul knows and all the theology that he doesn't know leads him to this, to this point of praise, to this doxology. His theology leads to doxology. Romans 1 to, to 11, verse 32, crescendos in 11, 33 to 36 in this hymn of praise. And after that, in chapter 12 to the end, it's all practical, practical implications of everything that he's already talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans. His theology, the study of God and his knowledge of God leads to a doxology, a hymn of praise, a song, a triumphant note. Paul begins verse 33, have a look at it, with the word oh. In modern terms, woe. Paul is left amazed and speechless at everything that he's covered. Changing uh, the image for a moment, one writer describes Paul as a climber who has climbed the whole way to the summit of Mount Everest and stands back to see everything that he's come to look at and simply says, wow, awestruck at God's beauty and God's majesty. Following on from this speechless moment, the apostle praises God for three tremendous truths. And that's what I want us to notice together this morning. If you're taking notes, these are the three truths. Three tremendous truths about God. That God knows all. 
Point one, God is above all. Truth two, and God controls all. Firstly, notice God knows all. God knows all. Have a look again at verse 33. Oh, woe, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Here, Paul introduces some characteristics of God. The translation that I've just read has three characteristics. It understands riches as, as, as a separate attribute compared to knowledge and wisdom. But it's better to read only two characteristics here. That there's on one hand side, wisdom, and then the other hand side, knowledge. Two characteristics, wisdom and knowledge, which are always united throughout the Bible. So verse 33 actually reads, Oh, woe, the depth of the riches, both of the knowledge and wisdom of God. Paul is drawing our attention immediately to this, to this huge storehouse filled to the brim of God's knowledge on one hand and God's wisdom on the other hand. Knowledge is all about the mind. It's intellectual. It's the things that God knows. God knows all things past, present, and future. He knows all things that have happened, will happen, and could happen. He knows the things done in public. He knows the things done in private. He knows the things even committed in our heart. God knows the best action, and he knows the best route for that action. God's knowledge is even more extensive than the Google database. I remember preaching once and saying the title of the sermon was God Knows More Than Google. That's true, because truly God's knowledge is it's, it's far too wonderful for us. It's too high. We can't attain to it. Wisdom, on the other hand, is practical. It's what God does with the things he knows. So knowledge is intellectual. He knows everything. Wisdom is how to put that into practice. It's the practice of the knowledge. And in the context of Romans, it's the wisdom of salvation because it's the only, the all-wise and all-knowing God who would ever plan that the righteous, Jesus Christ, would die for the unrighteous sinners like you and me, that the lovely would die for the unlovely. Paul makes this clear elsewhere in his letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, where he says, the way of the cross was not wise in our eyes, in the eyes of Jews or in Greeks, but it was wise in his eyes. Why? Because he has all wisdom. Think about this for a moment. If you or I or if we could choose how to get to God, what will we do? How will we get our way to God? Well, we would pick something about works, wouldn't we? How can I say that? Because we've all done that before. Look at all the religions in the world. All the religions in the world, it's all a works-based religion. Do this, do that, say this, say that, give this, give that, in order to get to, to, to God, their concept of God. You give to charity, say the right words, live a good life, drive a nice car, thinking that it will all be okay in the end. And that may be you this morning. Again, I love coming to a new congregation because I don't know any of you. Some of you profess to be Christians and you maybe aren't Christians. Some of you say you're not a Christian and maybe you are a Christian. You don't even understand it yet. So I, I don't know you, but God knows you. Is that you this morning? 
trying to say the right words, coming to river of life, trying to live a good life, look like that, and yet you're actually separated from your creator. Well, God's wisdom far surpasses all our wisdom. His way is his sovereign choosing of his own people before the foundation of the world who would believe in his son, Christ Jesus. The God-man who was crucified on a cross and raised triumphant three days later. That's God's wise plan. So let me ask you this morning, have you considered the wisdom of God? Have you accepted the message of Scripture? Instead of trying to do better, Instead of trying to be better, have you simply believed in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for sinners? <laughs> That's all you have to do. If you're not a Christian this morning, all you have to do is to call upon the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, then you will be saved from his coming judgment on sin. Remember at the start what we said, chapters 1 to the middle of chapter 3, there's this universal problem of sin. But chapter 3 onwards, a universal provision of grace in Jesus, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're outside of Christ this morning, I encourage you to come to Jesus, to confess that Jesus is Lord, believe that he was raised from the dead, and in this coming judgment upon you will be turned away. You'll be brought back into a relationship with our creator and our maker, and it's just glorious. You get a new family sins are forgiven. They're, they're, they're forgotten. You have a hope of heaven where one day everything in our world will be made new. Come to Jesus this morning. And in some sense, we can know nothing about God's knowledge and his wisdom, intellectual and practical. And in some sense, we can't know anything about it because it's so wide, it's so deep, it's so high for us. But it's also true that God has spoken to us through his word. He's communicated us through the written pages of his holy word. And therefore, we can know things about God, the things that he has, he has shown us and wants us to know. That's why one of the, one of the church fathers uh, w- once said, uh, the scriptures are, are shallow enough for a child to come and drink without the fear of drowning and deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Let me say that again. The Bible, the scriptures, are shallow enough for a child to come, stand in, and drink without ever fearing that they're going to drown. And deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. Paul continues in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments, that is his sovereign decrees. They are incomprehensible. There's no injustice on God's part because he, he, he knows all and he knows what best to do with all that he knows. How inscrutable are his ways. The original word translated inscrutable is, is uh, something like uh, footsteps that, that, that are untraceable. So like a spy who leaves no trace, God's paths are beyond finding out. And that's why Paul praises God in this doxology. That's the first reason why Paul praises God, because our God knows all. Secondly, second tremendous truth is our God is above all. Our God is above all. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the image of a potter 
and clay, a potter and clay. We have all seen a picture. Maybe I should put this on the PowerPoint the next time. A picture of the potter's hands gently touching and moving and molding that clay with the wheel spinning around, always shaping it and, and finishing it and touching it and moving it. To what purpose? To his or her design. And someone may come in during the process and say, look at that rubbish, a heap of clay. It's, it's shocking. What is that? Why are you wasting your time doing that? And yet they don't realize that in the potter's mind, he or she knows the final product. And when that final product comes, we see how marvelous and how beautiful it is. The potter doesn't listen to critique or to anyone because they know in their mind what the final product will be. No one knows the potter's idea and therefore no one instructs the potter what he or she should do. The Bible frequently uses this image to describe God and his people the we as his people are the clay, and God is this master potter who, who touches and molds every single piece of clay. Paul in Romans chapter 9 uses this image and says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? As the divine potter, God is above all. He is above all people. He's above all questions. He's above all, he is above all other ideas. The all-knowing, the all-wise God is totally, totally self-sufficient. In verses 34 to 35, Paul praises God for this truth by using three rhetorical questions. And I tried this previously. I preached this sermon once before in a church, and I asked the people to respond to me, and they weren't... Uh, an international church, so they all stood there like, oh, we're not going to respond. So I'm going to ask you, when I ask the question, I want you to shout out no one as a response. Because you're all going to do that, aren't you? Because you're international and we love it and we're joyous. So question number one, Paul says in verse 34, for who is known the mind of the Lord? And we answer, no one. This verse is the New Testament equivalent to, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways. You see, with infinite knowledge and wisdom, no one can understand or question the mind of God. Remember what we previously discovered. God knows all things past. He knows all things present. And he knows all things in the future. He knows all things potential. And he knows all things actual. So like the potter, he knows the final result. So no one can question him. No one can ask him. Therefore, he is always right. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Question two, verse 34 again. Who has been his counselor? We answer. Ah, you do better than that. Who has been his counselor? Yeah. It's a quotation again from Isaiah 40, verse 13, a text which describes the incomparableness of God in the act of creation. In Mesopotamian myth, um, their, their god, um, Marduk, who is described as the creator of God, needed the help in creation by, by the spirit called Ei. 
So Marduk needed AI in order to help him. But in Genesis chapter 1, we read about God and God alone creating the heavens and the earth. God has no presidential aid. God has no mentor. God has no lab partner or fellow elder or business partner. No one can teach God. No one can counsel God or no one can question God. God is God and that settles it. Question number three, verse 35. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? We answer. No one. <laughs> better. The apostle here quotes from Job 41, verse 11, where God rebukes Job. I'm sure some of us are familiar with the story of Job. Job um, asked God in the midst of this horrible suffering where he lost his family, he lost his business, he lost his home, he lost everything, even his friends come and, and ask questions of Job. And he's, he's at the bottom of this journey of suffering. And Job asked God, where was he when this horrible suffering came? And in turn, God replies and asks Job, where was he when the foundations of the world were laid? What God is saying to Job, quoted here by the Apostle Paul, is that no one was there. Therefore, God is answerable to no one. In life, we become in debt to the government, and most governments at some point become in debt to banks or to other people, but not with God. God is indebted to no one. He owes no one nothing. No one helped him, no aided. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was no one who, who aided his, his sovereign choices. God acts completely, independently, and on his sovereign prerogative. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Question one. Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Paul's telling us, again, in this song, that God is above all. He's above all people, he's above all questions, and he's above all ideas. Now, you may be panicking a little bit now, because in our 21st century world, especially in the West at the present time, no accountability to us equals havoc and destruction it would become a little bit easy because all of us at the present time, whether it's in business or whether it's in politics and even sadly in Christian ministry and in the church, we have seen and see the devastating results when there is no accountability. No accountability automatically guarantees havoc and destruction. So to hear that God is accountable to no one, we're like, whoa, who is this guy? Who is this God? But however, it's not the case with God. Because although God doesn't have a human accountability partner, he is accountable to his own character. God is accountable to his own character. You see, all of God's ways are, are perfectly and, and consistently acting uh, together. They, they, they rely and move and interact with one another. So God always acts consistently with his character. He never makes a mistake and never accidentally slips up for one second. So that means that God acts totally and entirely in line with his good character. It means that God acts in line with his gracious character, with his merciful character, with his just character 
with his righteous character, with his loving character, and so on, and so on, etc., etc. So there's no cause for alarm or need to panic. Rather, our response is one of praise to the God who knows all and the God who is above all. And the third tremendous truth on the screen behind me, we praise God who controls all. God who controls all. This, what we're saying already, doesn't want you to stand up and sing to God and listen to Paul's final verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The direction of travel is God. It's one way, traffic. The early church understood this to be a reference to the three persons of the Godhead. In other, uh, in, in other words, they thought that the first reference was to God the Father and then to God the Son and then to God the Spirit. But the problem with that suggestion is that in Scripture, in the Bible, we're never said that, that, that everything finally works towards the Holy Spirit alone. It's to God alone, not to the Holy Spirit, isolated by himself. So it's better to understand the hymn in verse 36 as referring to the whole Godhead, three in one, stating that God is active in everything, that he, that he controls everything. So we understand that, for example, in terms of salvation, God is the source, he is the means, and he is the goal of our salvation, or in Paul's word, for, from him, the source, through him, the means, and to him, the goal of our salvation are all things. Or we understand it in terms of creation. God is the creator, from him. God is the sustainer, through him. And God is the beautifier, to use John Calvin's words, the beautifier of all things, the goal. Or we understand it in terms of time, that God is the alpha and he's the omega and all letters in between. He is the beginning and he's the end and every second and season between. In other words, God controls all things. And that's the third reason why the apostle praises God. And it's to this God, verse 36, be glory forever. Not just glory, but the original has a definite article, the glory. That is to God be the supreme honor for all ages. To God be the highest praise. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's how Paul finishes. Let it be. And we too can say amen to Paul's doxology, his hymn of praise. Why? Because we, as Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God because he knows all things, truth number one, because he is above all things, truth number two, and because he controls all things, truth number three. So as the title suggests, we praise the God of all. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is a song. It's a crescendo in this musical composition of Romans. Now, you may be coming to this, and this is amazing. It, it, it stirs you up. You want to sing a little bit. You want to maybe dance a little bit. I, I don't know what you do here in River Life. <laughs> but how does this help us in the next days? How does this help you as you uh, go back into work tomorrow? How does this help you as you travel back to Mexico and to the unknown there? How does it help me going back to Northern Ireland with the uncertainty of the next months to prepare to marry to Germany? How, how, 
How does this help us? What next? What do we take away from this? What do we do with all of this information? Is it relevant to my life? Absolutely. And there are three areas, and they're on the screen behind me, that this helps and gives us particular relevance to. The first is the study or the reading and the understanding of God's Word. I wonder if you've ever been at a point where you've perhaps read God's Word, a promise in God's Word, a, a characteristic of God, and, and not quite understood how this makes sense. You can't understand why God has done something when His Word says something else, perhaps questioning His, his ways or His Word. And maybe, again, I don't know you, you're at that point tonight, this morning, sorry. Maybe you're at that point this morning. But we're not alone in this. You see, the Apostle Paul has been wrestling in chapters 9 to 11 with the mystery surrounding the future of his fellow Israelites and the partial hardening that has come upon them. And the amazing thing is that in the midst of all of this, in this distress, chapter 9, verse 2, sorrow, hurt, Paul doesn't come to all of the answers, but in the wrestling, he admits his weaknesses, acknowledges God's sovereignty, bows to his majesty, and simply praises God. That's the immediate context. Do you see that? That's the backdrop of this doxology in Romans 11. It's worship in the midst of wrestling. Worship in the midst of wrestling. And there's a lesson for us in this because we can only know so much as God has revealed to us. But many other things will be left unanswered. We want to know why, why, why God's word says this. We want to know why, why, why this happened, if God's character is this. All these questions in our life and through his word. But yet Paul reminds us that when we only go as high as is possible, all we can do is turn back and be awestruck at everything that we have saw to praise him. There's a wonderful verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. Write it down, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Have you ever heard that verse before? Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we can, we can continue to grow in the knowledge of God, but at the same time, we are to humbly admit that we can only know what God wants us to know, not the things that we want to know. So that's the first point of contact, the first point of application. Secondly, suffering. Suffering. The centers upon the questioning of God's ways and, and God's judgments. Why has God allowed this to happen? Why did God take him or her from me? What has God been doing through this awful season in my life? I've listened in the past two years to many individuals share about intense times of suffering that they have experienced in their lives. I'm conscious that that's the same here too. And there's some even here this morning potentially here suffering and, and, and struggling at the present time. And to you, God's word clearly speaks this morning. I'm not saying or, or pretending that I know your specific situation, but God's word in this passage teaches us an important truth. You see, the apostle Paul too was suffering. 
not physically, but emotionally. Back in chapter 9, verse 2, I've referenced it before. Paul tells us that he is suffering with great sorrow because his fellow brothers, Israelites, are separated from God. But his great sorrow, chapter 9, verse 2, has now turned to joy in chapter 11, 33 to 36. Not by denying the existence of suffering, living a stoic lifestyle, but by meditating upon God's character and upon God's ways. And as I listen to those who have experienced loss and hurt recently, we have experienced that as well as a family. Our sorrow turns to joy because we believe that since God knows all things totally, we can trust him completely. And that's the relevance of this doxology to times of suffering. That because at the start, sorrow, the end, there's joy. What's in between? Meditating on who God is, his purposes, and his plans. I think too of a Christian group called Shane and Shane over in the States. Maybe you've heard of them. Funnily, uh, both their names are Shane. That's why they're called Shane and Shane. And uh, one of them tells of why they wrote a song that while on tour, uh, their dad had a heart attack, so they, they, they flew back uh, to be with their mom. Uh, a few days later, the doctor entered that room, and, and they got the news that no one ever wants to hear, that their dad had passed away in the night. And Shane describes how at that moment, his mom just fell upon her knees and began wailing, crying at the top of her voice. And underneath her crying, he could hear the faint words of Job chapter 1, Verse 21, you give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with that backdrop, Shane and Shane wrote the song, which maybe some of you are, are familiar. Lo, you slay me, yet I will praise you. Lo, you take from me, I will bless your name. Lo, you ruin me, I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need church. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And that's an application to suffering. Thirdly and finally, we could go on all day. Thirdly and finally, it's to do with singing. Singing in church or at home. But the songs that we sing as Christians must be, must be theologically informed. Do you remember what Paul's doing here? He's, he's singing. It's a hymn of praise. All his theology, the study of God's word, has led to this doxology. So all theology leads naturally to doxology, and all doxology must be theologically informed. Do you see that? Theology, doxology, they interact, they go together. And Paul shows this after scaling the theological heights of the gospel, he praises God. His doxology is not some random expression, um, of, 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 of thoughts, rather, it's biblically informed. He uses Old Testament language. He focuses on the supremacy of God. So may we as a church, as a new church, as a leadership in this church, may we continually praise God with acceptable words. Take time to get rid of songs, and sadly, there are many out there that aren't theologically informed. And at the same time, get rid of those songs that aren't, that aren't 
let me make up a word, doxologized or whatever that word is, just like booming with praise and with joy. They both interact. They, they, they both must come together. And if you're a family today, as a family, praise God with biblical truth. Father, step up and lead your family. Introduce your family to good songs. Explain the truth that are contained in it to your children and to your wife. Why? Because all theology leads to doxology, and all doxology must be theologically informed. Do we see the relevance? Do we see the application? So three tremendous truths. God knows all. God is above all. God controls all. Three points of application. Learning scripture, suffering in the midst of life, and singing in church or at home. But as we draw our time to a close, let me ask you, or let's ask together rather, how do we do this? How do we get from biblically, sorry, how do we get to biblically informed doxology, whether it's in singing or suffering or in the study of God's word? How do we learn that, 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 that God knows all, that God controls all, and that God is above all? Well, it's by letting the word of God dwell richly in our hearts. It's making the word of God a priority, making it part of our daily diet so that we can continually feast upon it treasuring the word of God in our hearts so that in the right moments we can praise the God of all. To him be the glory forever and ever. And we all said, Father in heaven, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word. And we thank you, O God, for its relevance to our lives as well. And we pray, Father, for us as a church here that we would all be greatly encouraged. And that, Father, we would, we would praise you, the God of all. And if anyone in our midst or in our family is outside of Christ, O God, we ask that even this morning, angels in heaven would rejoice as people trust in your Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.